The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Open with me to Exodus chapter 14. And uh, we will continue uh, to walk through this book of the Bible, this, um, this account of God's dealing in a particular point in history together. There's something about the people of God singing these truths about God and to God that is, um, it particularly speaks of the hope we have. You know, in, in light of what has happened in, in, in Paris, um, you know, we sit here today and we sing, it is well, it is well with my soul. And, uh, and France is largely a nation that has, has turned away from God, that has left and has, has, has ran as hard and, and fast away from God as possible. And there is one source of hope, and it is the gospel in Jesus Christ. And so may we, may we continue things like this, where, where we are pushing our children and teaching our children to be concerned about the people of the world that they may have what they need, but more than that, that they may hear the only thing that will bring them hope. May we as adults give more of our time and our resources and the gifts that God entrusts to us to take the gospel to our neighborhood and to the nations. May more of us hear the call of God and leave the comfort of our own lives to be uncomfortable for the sake of God's glory among the nations. It's the only source of hope that will ever be found anywhere. Nothing else delivers on that promise. Exodus 14. Exodus 14, we have been walking through, and today we come to this pivotal moment, this climactic moment in the children of Israel, the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt. And God, this this entire sermon series walking through this first half of the book of Exodus is God is faithful to rescue. And we've seen this all along the way. And today we're going to come up against, we're going to see the Israelites literally between the devil and the deep blue sea or the Red Sea. We're going to see them literally between a rock and a hard place. You ever been in, in between a rock and a hard place in your life? I don't mean like I can either go to the dentist or I can go spend Thanksgiving with my in-laws. That's not really a rock and a hard place kind of thing that I'm talking about. I'm talking about one of those places that's just absolutely no good either way. The temptation is to come to passages like this and to preach this in such a way. I don't want to get ahead of my too, myself too far, but the temptation is to preach this in such a way that look and identify your Red Sea moment and just trust God and he will deliver you through it. I want to call us back today to, to away from that to, to see that this is a, a specific group of people in a specific place, in a specific location and time in history And this is what God has done there. But everything there was meant to point to a greater deliverance that would come. So with that in mind, let's look at the Israelites here uh, as their backs are to the sea and the Egyptians are pursuing them. Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? 
tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, I'm going to stop right there because today it's a long passage. And so what I'd like to do is read a section and explain. And let's deal with that section. And then we'll go back. And we'll go back and forth between the text and, and, and application and, and explanation. But here, the first thing I want you to see in verses 15 through 18 is that God often places his people. He often puts his people in places so that his glory will shine through his grace. God often puts people in places and situations that are so difficult, that are between a rock and a hard place, that are between one not good outcome and another, so that in the middle of that, his glory will come through his grace. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In verse 15 there, God begins to, he seems to to chastise Moses why do you cry to me? And, and in fact, Moses was not the one that was crying. It was the Israelites that had been crying. And Moses' words to them was, were, were, just be still, be silent. Watch God fight for you. So why does God rebuke Moses? Well, the illustration here that what we're supposed to see here is that Moses becomes a representative for the people. And so the rebuke meant for the Israelites gets poured out on Moses. It points to this mediator role that would come in Christ. That he would represent God to us. We only know what God is like when we look at him. When we look at his word. And then Jesus would also represent us before God. So that when God looks at us in our sin, those who have trusted Christ, he does not see us in our sin, but he sees us in Christ and we are free. Verse 15 though, God says... Tell the people to go forward. Well, which way was forward? There's some confusion here as to how we're supposed to translate this. Which way was forward? At this point, we don't know. Their backs are, at this point, up against the Red Sea, which was this enormous body of water. And to go forward into that is impossible. But to turn around and go forward toward the Egyptians would be deadly, at the least. They were not soldiers yet. They were not equipped to fight especially fight an army of the caliber of Egypt. And so at this point, which way is forward? Well, God clears that up for us. God gives them the command to go forward toward the sea. Now, you say, why in the world would God give this command? Isn't this impossible? And that's precisely why God gave them this command. Go forward toward the sea. Go toward, go into the sea. God gives them this command. He would send them into the impossible so that when they obeyed and walked toward that sea and he rescued them, that not one of them could take the credit, that he alone would get the glory. This is precisely why God sends them toward the sea. He would display his glory through his grace when he rescued them. 
We see this further pointed out to to us when he tells Moses in verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. I can imagine Moses in that moment, just in the flesh, Moses saying, duh, why didn't I think of that? Just lift my staff, speak to the sea and see it divided. I'll do that. Moses in his flesh was still a man. And Moses looked at the sea and realized he couldn't do this. Moses knew this was impossible. And God knew this was impossible. That's why he instructed Moses to raise the staff. Don't miss the fact that God gave Moses this staff as a visible reminder that every time he would raise this staff or utilize this staff in some way in the carrying out of God's directions, that Moses was not acting at his own directives or in his own resources, but that he was following God and he was using God's power. This staff reminded the people that Moses was a representative of the one the staff was to represent. Verses 17 through 18, uh, the Bible here says that he will, God said, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians that will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and over all of Egypt and all the chariots and all the horsemen. And this verse, this section, these two verses, 17 and 18, tell us what God is up to here. It's not new as we've walked through this. We've seen God up to this all the way through. In fact, this is what God is always up to. No matter what he is doing, he, was, he is always Seeking his own glory. He's always going after his own glory. If you want to know what the central message of the Bible is, what the most important message of the Bible is, it is that God is worthy of the glory of all people, of all creation, that God is altogether glorious. And this is what he's working toward all the time. God works through nature to get glory. He sends this strong wind, we read, we will read in the text later on, to, to blow all night long to divide the water. And God uses this natural force to divide another natural force, showing that he is powerful and sovereign over both. Haven't we looked around and seen the glory of God in nature? I heard this morning, even, even driving in and seeing the sunshine and the way the sky was colored this morning, and as if it had just been painted by the hand of God. In contrast to the rain that we had had, how uplifting it is. And it reminds us that God shows his glory in nature. If you think back even beyond that, though, before the sun had come back out and it was still raining and it had rained for weeks, you look around and you saw water standing, but aren't you glad that God designed the earth in such a way that water would run off of streets into canals and run into streams and those streams would flow to the ocean and he promised Noah, that he would never flood the earth again. God works through nature to show himself glorious. The wind and the waves obey him. Jesus steps out on that water and walks on it and tells the seas to hush, to be still, and they obey his voice. God works through human instruments to show his glory. He worked through a man like Moses who was given to a temper and would have fits of rage. And if you'll remember, before he was the deliverer sent back to Egypt to lead Israel out, he was the murderer who was on the run because he had killed an Egyptian. This is a man who God uses. God uses human instruments to show his glory. I experience this every time I preach. 
Sometimes I stand up here and I preach and I know that I have just laid an egg. I mean, it's okay to laugh at that because I know, I, I know, I can feel it. I'm, I'm preaching to you and you guys are checking your watches and you're picking up your phones and you want everybody to think you're looking at your Bible, but really you're on Facebook or you're playing some game with somebody on the other side of the sanctuary. I know there are times when I, when I come up here and I just don't deliver a good sermon to you, but I also know that even in those times, regularly people will come to me and say, it was like you were just speaking directly to me. And in that moment, I know that it's not me in that moment, but God knows where you are, and he uses even poor, miserable, weak, unwise, unimportant Men like me to deliver his word and minister to his people. The Bible says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27 through 29, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I stand here before you every single week, not hoping that you will like me. My flesh, I'm tempted to that at times, but the ultimate hope is that you will see God and be captured by his glory. God uses unwitting people people who don't know they're being used. He uses unwitting people by either hardening or softening their hearts. And we see this here when he, God says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will follow you into the sea. Think about how ludicrous this would be. That all of a sudden, after all these plagues, after being just defeated soundly by the God of Israel, all of a sudden you're chasing after them again and you think it's a good idea to drive chariots into the sea that is standing up on either side. God hardens their hearts, and they don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're doing, but he's leading them along, and God's using them to display his glory. All so that he might be worshiped. Romans eleven thirty six says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. The purpose of your life, I can say with no doubt whatsoever, the purpose of your life, whether you are here today as a believer, as a Christian, or you're here as an unbeliever, a skeptic, or somewhere in between, the purpose of your life is to ultimately bring glory to your creator. God uses all things to bring glory to him for from him and to him and through him are all things God often puts his people into places so that his glory may shine through his grace we're going to see this as we walk through second thing I want to point out to you as we look at our next passage is that at their greatest moment of need God placed himself directly between them and their enemy At their greatest moment of need, God placed himself directly in between his people and their enemy. Look at verses 19 through 20. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. 
And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and and there was the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other at all. The Israelites are well aware as they're looking at this cloud in the sky, this pillar of cloud in the sky, they are well aware that this is not just some magical, superstitious, inanimate cloud that is somehow leading them. They are well aware that though God does not have a body, that for their sake, because of his kindness, he has made himself manifest so that they might follow him. They are well aware that this is not just a cloud, but this is God in this cloud. And at their greatest moment of need, God himself, this cloud, manifesting himself in this cloud that was leading them, going before them, in their greatest moment of need, he moves from before them and goes to the back and places himself directly between the Israelites and the charging Egyptians. All night long, the Bible says that he stayed there. All night long, I wondered about what this meant when it said that there was the cloud, there was darkness, and it lit up the night. How can darkness light up the night? The reality is that all night long, this cloud on one side, the side of the Egyptians, was dark. But on the side of the Israelites, it was light. And God kept the Egyptians in the dark to keep them confused and keep them from advancing while keeping his own people in light. So that they might watch what he would do. And God has done the same for us. And keep in mind that this was a specific enemy. And here we're not talking about just some Red Sea of your life. But this was an enemy. This was Egypt coming at them. And God moves in between them and Egypt. But remember, all the events of the Old Testament were given to us, recorded for us, happened even, so that they might point forward to a greater deliverer, a greater deliverance that would come. Here, the enemy is Egypt, but the enemy that would one day come pressing in on all humanity would be sin, and sin would be charging down the hill, coming toward all of humanity, pressing them further and further up against the sea of God's wrath. Every single human being here, every single human being who's ever lived has been infected with this disease called sin. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot get away from it. It has wrapped itself so tightly around us that it is almost even within our DNA. We've given, given the, the sinful nature from our first father, Adam. No matter who you are, sin captures you and, and ensnares you. It is the slave master who pursues you and wants to keep you there. And because of that sin, the Bible says that, that the penalty, the wages of sin is death. Death there being this punishment from God, ultimately heading toward the wrath of God. And so here, this picture of the Israelites with Egypt coming down and the Red Sea at their back, not knowing which way to turn, is a picture here of sin pushing them ever toward God's wrath. When we stood between sin and the sea of God's wrath, did not God also do the same thing? Not in the form of a cloud. But this time he took the form of a man. And he came and he lived a life for 33 years, a perfect life, 
And the Bible says that in our moment of greatest need, he went to a cross. And he placed himself directly in between sin and the wrath of God. And he absorbed the wrath of God for sin that he had never committed for the sake of those who were ensnared by this sin. God himself has placed himself in between us and our greatest enemy. And it's not because you have a hard commute. It has nothing to do with that coworker. It has everything to do with the greatest problem that you have, and it is sin. The Bible teaches in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That he placed himself right there in our place, in the middle of our greatest predicament. Third, at their greatest moment of need, God rescued his people by providing the way out. Look at verses 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. We read something like this, and we're tempted to hear the question from the culture and possibly even from within your own self. Do we really believe this? Do we really believe that the water stood up? Do we really believe that the Israelites walked through on dry ground? Yes, we do. And we believe stranger things than this. We believe that God created the universe from nothing. Only by his spoken word. We believe that Jesus was a real man in history who was born to a virgin. We believe that Jesus lived a life without ever sinning. We can't imagine that because we're so prone to sinning. We can't imagine anyone ever doing it, but we believe that about Jesus. We believe that he went to a cross that he died on that cross, that he was dead for three days, and that three days after, he came back to life. We believe that after he was back alive again, that he showed himself to his followers, and that one day he went up into the clouds. That he's right now with his Father in heaven, and we believe that one day he's going to come back. He's going to come back riding a horse in the sky. These things sound so strange and so weird, and we understand. These things don't make us popular. And these are the things that cause the culture around us to say, you're a bunch of idiots. Do you really believe this? And we must be settled that we do. After all, truth is stranger than fiction. You couldn't make this stuff up. We believe this because it is true. Whether whether you can prove it or not, if truth is truth, it is true. And regardless of what you believe or don't, if it is true, it is true. We believe these things. At their greatest moment of need, God rescued his people by providing the way out. And look at how he does it. 
He sends this strong east wind all night long. And I would just call you to put yourself in the situation and remind yourself, where are they standing at this moment? Aren't they on the west bank of the Red Sea? And all night long, they're given this wind that divides coming out of the east, right? So this wind is not like this, a, a, a line of blockers on a football team that are clearing the hole so that as they, as they go, they've got blockers out in front. And it's just opening as they go through. All night long, as they are watching, because this cloud, the presence of God behind them is lighting up the sky, they see this water coming at them and how it's dividing, coming. And for a long time, all night long, they watch this thing grow toward them. And they trust God all the way. At the greatest moment of need, God rescues his people by providing the way out. Sometimes we think, God rescue me already. And the reality is, God does things in his own time. We we hear things like the attacks in Paris and we think, Jesus, come quickly. As we sang that a minute ago, Lord, haste the day. My heart couldn't help but to go to that and go to a, a, a thousand other evils that are present in our world and think, God, what are you waiting for? And the reality is the Bible tells us that at this moment that God is patient, enduring so that others may come to know him as Lord. It stood on that west bank and all night long over their shoulder, they know Egypt is still there. But they see the cloud behind them. They see God in between them and their enemy. And then as they look forward, they see this channel coming toward them as it's opening. And they see, they watch. And they have this enduring moment of all night long watching God provide the way out. There's another phrase in this passage where it says that when they walked through the sea on dry ground, the walls were standing up on either side, and they were the water being a wall to them, it says. The word there used for wall is the same word used to, to describe strong city walls. This is not some marshy little area of water that is standing up a few feet on either side. This is, this is the picture here of the water becoming for them like a citadel that they are walking through, and God is protecting them as they walk between these, these walls of water. It reminds us of Proverbs 18, verse 10, that says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. I I was walking through this and studying and preparing for this message, and I thought, you know, how difficult it must have been for the Israelites to take that first step and to walk out in in that dry land between those walls of water. Can you imagine how difficult that might have been? In this day, very few, most people could not swim at all, so you're telling them to walk in between these walls of water, not knowing it. I mean, you know what's holding them up, but it goes against every law that you've ever known. Yet they step out and they trust the Lord. They run into the strong tower, and I couldn't help but to think, how often do we place our trust in other things to protect us? Proverbs 18, 11 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. 
The, the, the principle there is this, that it, those that go after wealth, there's nothing wrong with going after wealth, but when that wealth for you becomes what you're placing your hope in, you think you are so protected, but it's all in your imagination, and it can come crashing down at any moment. Proverbs 25, 28 says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Self-control is a good thing. The Bible advocates for self-control. One of the gifts, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. But how often do we have this attitude of, well, I can, I can handle this. I've got this. And before we know it, it's out of control. And all of a sudden, this thing that we thought we had and was so secure around us is crashed down around us, and we are like a city left without walls. God, at the right time, provided the way out. Fourth is this, or third or fourth, I don't know where I am, but at the right time, at the right time, God destroyed the enemy of his people. Verses 23 through 29, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them and into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the chariots and the horsemen, uh, threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed him into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Sometimes people take these events in the Bible and they draw these big conclusions about God and they say, why do you believe in that God? Why do you follow that God? He's, he's just a cruel God. The God of the Bible is, is just cruel and evil and he's always destroying people. Sometimes they want to draw a line of, of demarcation or differentiation between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament and say, the God of the Old Testament was just a God of wrath and anger. The God of the New Testament is love and tolerance. The reality is God is sometimes harsh, but he's never cruel. Because there is a difference between cruelty and justice. There's a hunger in every single person for justice. I mean, it's been interesting to watch since the attacks in Paris. The people talk about what happened there. It's been interesting to watch a people and a culture and news outlets that previously had no category for evil struggle with what to call this. It didn't take them long at all to call this evil, to speak in terms of ISIS must be destroyed. The reality is a, a culture that is always preaching tolerance also has this hunger for justice within them. The destruction of Egypt's army was God's just reaction 
to the evil, the evil acts that Egypt had committed. Um, look at how God does it. God hardened their hearts and when he led them in. He caused the, the wills to, to literally become, to start coming off. We don't know exactly if, the, if their wills began to fall off or if their wills just got bogged down in the still soft mud underneath them. We don't know exactly what happened, but all of a sudden God lures them in and then the wheels start falling off of these chariots. They begin to realize what they're in for and, and panic sets in. They, they realize that they're not fighting against Israel, they're fighting against the God of Israel, that God fights for Israel. And by the time they say, let's get out of here, it's too late. And God gives Moses the instructions to lift his hand and cause the water to come crashing back down on them. God is not being cruel in the middle of this. God's being just. God is now destroying this army that once carried out the instructions of Pharaoh to throw all those baby boys into the Nile River. God is carrying out justice here. We look at this and we think, Phew, I'm glad I didn't live then. But the message of the Bible is that this will not be an isolated event. In Revelation chapter 18, the Bible tells us how the city of Satan will be cast into the sea at the final judgment. Revelation 18, 21 says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. There's coming a day when God's justice will be executed and carried out perfectly. That no one in that day will accuse God of being unjust. In fact, when you're reading through Revelation, if you go to the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 2, the, the, the Bible there tells us that the saints immediately begin to sing this hallelujah song. Revelation 19, 1 and 2 says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So what's the conclusion in all this, you say? What, what, what in the world are we supposed to take from this? You take from this the, the phrase, the very first point, that God often puts his people into places so that his glory may shine through his grace. And all the way through this, we see God's grace, his grace in the fact that he guarded them by moving to the back, his grace in the fact that he rescued them by opening the sea. His grace in the fact that he destroyed their enemy and executed justice. You say, well, what is the response to that? Well, look at verses 31, 30 and 31. Verse 30 and 31, the, the first response is that they are struck with awe and wonder. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. There is a sense in which when you come face to face with the glory of God, you can't walk away from that going, man, that was cool. You walk away like Isaiah and you say, woe is me, for I am undone. 
I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And you're struck with the awesome glory of God. And then in the last part of verse 31, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. It's not enough simply to be struck with this awesome glory of God, but that awesome glory that you behold of God when God extends his grace to you time and time and time again should not simply result in this awe, but it should result in you believing him and trusting in him. I don't know who you are or what's going on in your life. I don't know what you're wrestling against, and I'm not, I'm not going to apply this in such a way that whatever you're in is a Red Sea moment and just trust God. But I do want you to see the character and the nature and the heart of God. I want you to see the gospel more than anything. That today, if you are here and you have never, never turned from your sins and trusted God alone in Christ alone, then today... Believe in him. The Bible teaches that if you will believe in him, if you will call on him, that you will be saved. I want to call you to that. God places his people in those places so that his glory might shine through his grace. His grace is not meant to to end on you. His grace is meant to end in his glory. Glorify him by believing him today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. And God, I pray that you would now take your word. And God, that you would have spoken to hearts and you would continue to do so. Lord, you are sovereign over every human being. So God, in this room, I pray, God, that you would do what you do and you would convict of sin call people to yourself let the wind of your spirit blow wherever it will blow God that you might today glorify yourself by extending grace in this room I pray in Jesus name amen I want to give you a moment to reflect and respond if God has spoken to you in some particular way today we want to give you that opportunity I'll be down here at the front I would love for you to to come and speak to me whether it's you know today you need to be saved then I would love to talk with you maybe it's something that you just need to pray about we have people in a prayer room out those doors they would love to just take some time and pray for you pray with you maybe it's to join this church whatever the case may be use this time to not just sit in awe of God but to believe him and to follow him there. You respond as God leads. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.